This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 105. And the quote of the day is from Richard Branson, who said, My biggest motivation? Just to keep challenging myself. I see life almost like one long university education that I never had. Every day I'm learning something new. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information. Education and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And this session is brought to you by Boso Bamboo Drumsticks, the world's first full line of bamboo drumsticks. Be sure to check them out at bosodrumsticks.com and use the promo code podcast and save yourself 15% off your entire order. This session is also brought to you by Drum Magazine. And listen, drummers, if you want to play better and play better faster, be sure to check them out every month. They don't just have these cliche Q&As, but they have in-depth profiles and gear reviews and some of the best lessons you'll find anywhere, like the amazing 43 shuffles every drummer should know. I don't know if you've checked that out yet, but you definitely should. Check them out today or subscribe at drummagazine.com. Now, the interview that I have today, I'm really, really, really excited about. I got the one and only Gary Chafee, and he is a world-renowned educator. He has written some amazing books that have stood the test of time that people have been working out of since the 70s. He is just an amazing player, an amazing amazing clinician, excuse me, an amazing educator. Uh, And we're going to talk about the writing of all those books, how to practice out of those books, his, his three main keys for practicing uh, for practicing anything, uh, his opinion of the things that are going on in the music industry today, and his retirement and now coming out of retirement. So this is a great interview, and I'm really, really excited to have him on the show. So let's get right into it, Mr. Gary Chafee. Gary, how are you? Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's, uh, you know, it's, I have to, I, I feel like I want to bring up the way that we met, um, that I, I was sending out a PDF that had some exercises out of your book and I didn't realize, uh, that they were out of your book and you got, I guess someone sent it to you, you sent me an email. And so I wanted to firstly, um, publicly at least apologize and publicly acknowledge that if, if anyone has gotten based from figure email from me, that is in fact a PDF of yours. Um, that I was sending out. And I wasn't saying that it was my own work, but I just wanted to to clear the air and publicly uh, apologize to you and let you know that those bass drum figures have been very instrumental in my playing for years. So I want to, like I said, thank you and apologize for uh, for sending that stuff out. And thank you for allowing me to continue to send out the PDF. I appreciate that. That's fine. Uh, it happens all the time. Those are some of the most popular things from the book. So they've been copied a lot. So don't worry about it. Well, I guess uh, not that that makes it right, but I think that that speaks to the volume of how important and how good those those books are. And and we're going to get into all that because I, I definitely want to know or I definitely want to let everyone know about all the patterns books. But before we get into that, I always like to get a little bit of backstory about the people who I have on the show. So can you just give us a little bit about uh, about who you are and what you do? You want my history or what I've been doing for the last 20 years? Well, or? just a, a, a brief history. I always like to hear how people got into playing and then how you've, how you've really forged this, this career in music. Okay, so I started, like a lot of people do, in uh, grade school, taking lessons on drums. And uh, when I got to uh, high school, 
by the time I was playing in the bands and stuff, by the time I was a junior, my music teacher, a new music teacher came in who was a percussion major from uh, Potsdam. That's a university, State University of New York. And so he helped me out a lot. His name was Enzo Cimino, C-I-M-I-N-O. And uh, he taught me all the percussion instruments and uh, got me going a little bit on drum set. Then I went to Potsdam in uh, 62. And uh, the guy that I ran into there who was very influential was Sandy Felstein, who later on became uh, the head of Warner Brothers Publications. And uh, he taught me a lot of stuff. Uh, about uh, the same the same basic areas, but uh, at a higher level. And he also took me to New York a couple of times because I was from upstate New York, so I was really a novice in terms of knowing what was really going on. So he took me down to uh, New York and took me to some clubs and stuff, and I saw some of the guys play, and it was it was quite an experience for me. And then uh, I went to graduate school at uh, DePaul University in Chicago, and uh, there I ran into a guy who was probably the most influential guy in my career, and he wasn't a drummer. He was a composition teacher, counterpoint teacher, orchestration teacher. His name was Donald J-E-N-N-I, and he hipped me to all of the rhythm stuff and the meter stuff and the composition stuff. He was basically my mentor for the first and possibly the second patterns books because he Hmm. explained how all that stuff worked. I played uh, a piece that none of your guys will probably know, but on my graduate recital, I played a piece by Stockhausen called uh, Zyklus, which is a solo performance piece for a percussionist written in graphic notation. I had no idea how to play it, and he he helped me to do it. My percussion teacher was completely not interested, which is why I'm not even mentioning his name, because he was not you know into that kind of stuff. But coming up as a percussionist, which is what I was, you know, playing in percussion ensembles and stuff, and you know, playing music of uh, the guys that wrote for that uh, type of ensemble, you ran into a lot of pretty avant-garde stuff. And mm-hmm. it always interested me. Uh, how uh, how do you play these rhythms? How do you play a five? How do you count it? What do you do if it's a big one, you know? And uh, I never really found anybody that could explain it to me until I ran into Donald, and, and he just laid it out, and it was... It was really incredible. It set me on the path to really being interested in the whole concept of musical time. Hmm. Then after that, I did my first teaching gig at Western Illinois University, which is down in a little town in Macomb, Illinois, and stayed there for four years and, you know, set up a percussion program and ensembles and stuff. And then, uh, I went to, uh, after that, I left and uh, went to Berkeley and started teaching there. And after about a year, they made me the chairman. And then uh, I set up a program there. And I was very fortunate because we had just a lot of really great students. Mm -hmm. 
that was the time that I ran into Vinny and Steve Smith and Kenwood and Casey and JR and a lot of other guys that people may not have heard of so much, like Joel Taylor, who was a great player but didn't get the same level of recognition as some of these other guys. But we had a really good program. I think that was the thing. And it really let these guys kind of express themselves in their own unique way. And what, and what year are we talking about here? That's 72 to 77. Okay. So that was right. And, so is, was that right around the time when I guess Jr. and Vinny and, and Steve Smith and all those guys were sort of coming up? Yeah. I, I mean, after a year, I mean, obviously of all the students I ever had, Vinny was the most incredible mm-hmm. because he could understand what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. I remember once Steve Smith did an interview in some magazine, and, and because I was doing those guys in group lessons, because it was the only way, at Berkeley, you only get half-hour lessons when I was there, which was ridiculous. So I started setting up group lessons so I could see them two or three times a week. So you might come in on a Monday and have a group lesson on rhythm, and you might come in on Wednesday and have a group lesson on 3-4 jazz, and... So I got to see the guys a lot, but Steve was doing an interview in some magazine, and he said he would always come out of these lessons with a headache because it would just be so intense what we would be talking about. Vinny, on the other hand, would come out of the lessons and understand everything that I was saying and would be able to play it. Hmm. So whereas with a normal student, I'd give him one page out of the Rhythm and Meter book, let's say, with Vinny, I'd give him one section, which right. might be 10 or 15 pages, and he would just nail it. So now do you think that is a, a learned thing, or he's just naturally talented? No, I think he got some training in that area, and and he also was, like myself, very interested in that kind of material. So it was uh, just the confluence of events that... Uh, brought us together, and we were kind of on the same page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So now you were, um, so you said that you were at Berkeley from what years to what years? 72 to 77. Then I resigned and uh, kind of went out on the road, started doing a lot of clinics, a lot of gigs, a lot of traveling in Europe, and that was my career for... The next 20, 25 years, because, you know, a lot of the people that I had taught were from Europe. Mm-hmm. And then they went back and they became teachers at the universities and stuff there. So they would bring me over to teach. And in Europe, there's a lot of drum schools. It's not like here where you have, you know, the Percussion Institute and and a few other places here and there. I mean, in Italy alone, there are three drum schools in Rome. Hmm. These are these are big schools with lots of students, and in Norway there are, um, uh, in France it's the same thing pretty much all over Europe because they don't really get it in the schools. Right. So the these drum uh, shops set up uh, classes and ensembles and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I would go over and either go over for playing gigs. It was about 50-50, playing gigs or uh, tours that were basically drum clinics. Right. Hmm. 
it. And then uh, after uh, about 25 years of doing that, I just got sick of traveling, basically, and I wanted to be home more. You know, I had grandkids coming online, so sure. I uh, came back here and just started teaching more, playing locally. There's a lot of great players in Boston. Mm-hmm. And and we would do touring. We would do some European things and so forth, but we mainly did stuff on the East Coast. And Right. Then, then a few years ago, I kind of semi-retired. Yeah, well, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that. Um, well, let's let's touch on the on the patterns book first. Um, when did the first patterns book come out? I think the first two came out together. One and two came out about uh, when I was at um, Berkeley, probably about seventy four, maybe. Okay. And, and uh, then the other ones came out, you know, later. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about the patterns books a little bit because they're they're different than any any book out there. There and you and everybody always mentions whenever your name comes up, it's always about that you have a unique teaching style and with the patterns books and just your approach to everything. So what was the what was the uh, the approach when writing the patterns book? And also, how do you suggest that that people really use those books to get the most benefit out of them? Yeah, well, the, like I said, the first two are a unit because when I first was, I was working on this stuff long before that they, they were published, obviously. Mm-hmm. It, took, it took about six or seven years to put them together. And the rhythm thing was really coming from my experience as a percussionist and playing you know, Stockhausen and Berez and Weber and, and all this kind of music. And these all these guys were writing these rhythms, and I wasn't seeing them in drumming, in drum set playing. I was seeing them in this, this other kind of music. And I said, well, why aren't we doing this mm-hmm. in the music that we play? So I wanted to figure out a way to... Um, kind of teach guys how to broaden their rhythmic vocabulary, first of all. And then the second thing was, well, if you're going to play these rhythms, how are you going to play them? Right. With single strokes, with double strokes, with stickings? So that's kind of where this, the sticking book came online, was a way of representing the various ways that you could play these different rhythms. And it was all about a lot of guys... Uh, think that, uh, you know, when they, they, they talk about polyrhythms, first of all, which is really a misnomer. Uh, polyrhythm, literally translated, just means many rhythms. So when you play eighth notes in your bass drum and sixteenth notes in your snare drum, that's a polyrhythm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be five against two or anything like that. It's just means multiple rhythms. But uh, uh, the odd rhythms like five and seven, nine, eleven have just never been a big part of the way drummers are taught to play rhythms, mm-hmm. which is not true with people on other instruments. I know for a fact because my wife is a classical pianist, and she has kids, you know, 10 years old, 12 years old. They're playing fives and sevens because it's in the music that they're playing. So they don't think that it's anything unusual to do that. Sure. But somehow we've gotten this idea that that's the weird stuff. Uh, yeah, Zappa did it, but it's, you know, it's not something I can use on the gig. If I play a five on the gig, I'm going to lose the gig. So 
so the whole idea was to, you know, teach guys that, yeah, you can use this stuff if you use it with taste and with some discretion and don't try to beat people over the head with it. And uh, that there are a lot of things that you can do with it. Once you understand the whole thing, it's, I mean, musical time is a very big issue. Mm -hmm. It takes, I would say, a beginning college student, you would have to spend at least a couple of years if you were, you know, at a fairly decent level to really get a handle on the whole thing. That's not to say that you couldn't use bits and pieces of it here and there, but it's a pretty big topic. Sure. And then the the articulation part, my sticking system, which is a lot different, obviously, than the rudiments, was designed to go along with this because, I mean, I grew up with the rudiments like everybody else, but the problems with the rudiments, they were designed for core playing, marching band playing. They didn't really take into consideration rhythm too much. Mm-hmm. So certain rhythms are not represented at all, and that's, that doesn't make them bad or anything. It just means that wasn't what the guys were into at that time. That wasn't what the rudiments were for. We eventually started thinking of the rudiments as a way to develop technique, which they will. If you play the rudiments a lot, they will develop technique, but so will lots of other things. Mm-hmm. And so not so they... It essentially became a part of basic drum set uh, training. So everybody, almost everybody that comes up on drums is going to be playing rudiments. I did all through grade school and high school. That's, you know, was part of all, all of our contests and stuff. Sure. But there are lots of stickings. Some people know about some of the Swiss rudiments. There are Norwegian rudiments. I'm sure there's some rudiments and from some other countries that are not part of our system, but they're just ways of playing notes, and there are lots of other ways of playing notes. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing is not to associate um, the notes that you're playing with the rhythm. In other words, if I'm playing a triplet or I'm playing 16th notes, it doesn't mean I have to play a three-note sticking or a four-note sticking. I can play any sticking in either of those rhythms. Right. And since those are the two rhythms that we play most of the time, if I have additional ways of playing them, I'm going to be able to do more interesting things with them. Like an example with the with the triplet, you could do, you're saying like two on one hand, one on the other, or... Or you know, just fl- are you are you saying just? No, what I'm saying is you could play a triplet with a triplet sticking, like you just described, mm-hmm. like right, left, left, or right, right, left. But you could also play a triplet with a four note sticking, mm-hmm. and you could also play a triplet with a five note sticking, or a six note sticking, or a five note sticking and a three note sticking, or a six note sticking and a seven note sticking. And when you play a sticking. With a uh, when you play a rhythm, I'm sorry. With a non-matching sticking, the result is phrasing. You get a phrase. So if I play triplets with a paradiddle, I'm going to get a certain phrase because it's going to take a certain amount of time for those two things to cycle. In that case, it would be 12 notes. So in one measure of triplets, I could play three paradiddles. Mm-hmm. 
and in two measures of triplets, I could play six paradiddles to get back to the same hand. Right. To re- restart with the you know with the right hand. So if I played a five note sticking over that triplet, it would take me five beats of triplets. Five and three, fifteen is the common denominator. So it would take five beats to do it, and. It's a way of developing a concept of how do you play through the time. In the beginning, it's kind of mathematical, which all music is. Mm-hmm. Music is based on math. The intervals are based on math. The scales are based on math. So we shouldn't be afraid of math. It doesn't make it sterile or something. It's just a way of describing it. But when you do that, when you play triplets, for example, which would be pretty novel for a lot of students, with a five-note sticking, say my 5C sticking, which is the easiest one because it's non-alternating, right, left, right, left, left, after about two minutes, you'll start hearing it. You'll hear what the relationship is between the rhythm and the sticking. And that's the beginning of phrasing. That's how you learn how to play phrases, which are basically, you know, a phrase is kind of like a musical, uh, it's kind of like a sentence in words. It has a beginning and it has an end. And just like all sentences can be of different sizes, you can have short ones and long ones. It's the same thing with phrasing ideas in music. You can have short ones and long ones. So mm-hmm. we shouldn't always be confined to playing phrases from one to one. Sure. Sure. You know, there's, I've, I play a lot of, so what am I playing? I'm playing uh, four note or four note sticking in a three note subdivision. Right. So, and then, but th- you know, it's, it's an elongated phrase, like you said. And once you, and I remember the first time I ever heard it, you know, and it's about to do, got 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 to do, one. And you, right. once, you, once you start to once you hear that, it's almost like someone opens up a door of of all these different possibilities. Once you start hearing things differently, because yeah, the thing that guys need to understand, you know, with this rhythm thing, I mean, Jr. did a uh, an article in um, Drumhead Mag not too long ago, an interview cover story. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about Quincy, and he was talking about when he had studied with me, you know, and he was working on that stuff and. And Quincy said, oh, you don't need that polyrhythm bullshit. <laughs> and yeah, you don't need that polyrhythm bullshit to play uh, Michael Jackson tunes. Of course not. Everyone knows that. Right. But listen to Jack play mm-hmm. and tell me that you don't need that polyrhythm or that it doesn't sound really great what he's doing. I mean, there are different things that different people can get interested in. And I've always felt that rhythm is a drummer's turf. Mm-hmm. You may not know chord scales, and you may not know drop twos, and you may not know any of that stuff, but you definitely should be an authority on rhythm and meter. Those two things you should be really strong in. So if a guy comes in with a tune in 5-4, it shouldn't scare you. You mm-hmm. should already know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And Vinny plays a lot of that stuff with Sting. Absolutely. You know, and Sting's pop, but Vinny just had, I mean, Vinny's Vinny and he, you know, he sounds amazing. uh, But he, but like you said, he has complete control over it. So I think that, I guess that maybe people start to learn this stuff a little bit. And like many other things, they say, oh, I got it all figured out. And then they go out and pull it out on a gig and it just sounds like it doesn't sound musical. And I know that that's, 
that's not the point of it, and that's what you, that's what you're trying to express too. That that right. You know, you don't want to just hammer out these crazy stickings just because you worked on it in the practice room and it sounds cool. Right. I mean, that thing that Vinny did on the seven tune of Stings, I forget what the name of the tune is. Uh, Love is Stronger Than Justice. It could be. I or wouldn't know. Seven Days but, or something. Yeah. yeah, but the thing is, is that that's one of the first things, that's one of the first devices that anybody that goes into those areas learns. That's a way of phrasing an odd meter and making it sound even. Mm-hmm. It's a simple device. and But it sounded great on the tune. It didn't get in the way of the tune. It actually, it's something that a lot of people felt made the tune sound really well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's um, Joe Morella did the same thing on take five where it, it feels like it's in four. Right. You know, and but you, and you the first time you ever try to play along with it and, and think it's in four, <laughs> you're for a rude awakening. But <laughs> yeah, you would be surprised how many guys are really well versed in the rhythm, the rhythm and meter thing. They just uh, it, the opportunities to express it in the particular music that they're playing in may not be that great. So they have to really pick their spots. You don't want to overdo it. It's sure. just one one device amongst many. Mm-hmm. If you never played an unusual rhythm in your entire career, it wouldn't make any difference. No one's going to dish you because you didn't do that. It's just like uh, another thing that you have in your arsenal. If you have it, you'll use it. Hopefully you'll use it with taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's the important thing that people need to hear when they're listening to this is that it has to be, it has to be tasteful, but it also, you know, learning these different rhythms can, whether, you know, whether you're, even if you're not playing an odd time or playing odd, these odd rhythms, it still is going to add to your feel and your understanding and your control of, of meter and the way that you're, you're phrasing thing, whether it's something really crazy or really simple. Yeah, the thing is, is that a lot of people think that once you cross that line, that it's going to get weird. And there are a lot of ways of playing this kind of stuff that nobody will notice. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, you you order this chocolate ice cream cone, and it tastes a little bit different than normal chocolate ice cream. And you say, yeah, but it's still cool. It's still chocolate. It's not, you know... It's it's like that. There are ways of playing unusual things that don't sound unusual. Mm-hmm. You just have to know how to do it. It takes a little time, but it's worth it, I think, because it adds some texture to your playing that you may not have otherwise. Mm-hmm. If all you can play is eighth notes and sixteenth notes and triplets with eighth notes, sixteenth notes, and triplets, articulations, you're going to be limited in terms of your ability to phrase anything through the time. Sure. Now, and the best way to start to get into this stuff, obviously, is to to pick up your two patterns, the first two patterns books and start working out of them, right? That is a way. I mean, um, I ran into a lot of stuff in my, you know, when I was going to school Different books that I worked on, Vic First, Solo Snare Drummer book, uh, the Albright Snare Drum book, as well as a lot of percussion ensemble music, that had little bits and pieces. I mean, in the Albright book, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, his snare drum book, the second study had fives in it. 
the second study. And when I ran into it, I was dumbfounded. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how to play them. And he even had, so I forget what the notation was, he was trying to like kind of help you with it because he knew that it was different. Mm -hmm. But this is the second study in a snare drum book that's made for like an entry-level college player. It wasn't like a really advanced thing. Right. And if you look at Vic's book, The Solo Snare Drummer, he's got some very interesting rhythm things. So it's not like it's it's not around. It's been around. Some guys just are more interested in it than others. But yeah, if guys are interested in that, my books are one place that you could get, you know, some information on it. The problem with my books is they're really big and they're really long. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time to get through them. The, the, uh, and then it's like, how do you do it? Should you do them both at the same time? Should you do them separately, go, go all the way through one? And then the other, my answer to that is no. I think that you should start, if a guy wanted to work on that, those two things. I, my, my approach would be to start with the rhythm and meter stuff, get the rhythms over one beat together, which would be like the first 20 or so pages, and then you're ready to jump into the sticking book because the first two parts of the sticking book are single strokes and uh, double strokes. Mm -hmm. It's a long time before you get to the sticking, so you could easily you know, do that stuff without knowing anything about polyrhythms or anything like that. Right. And well, you know, I also have a question for you in terms of practicing and and using your books and using other books and learning new things because it's it's really easy to pick up your book, learn a few things out of it, and then you know not really master it and just jump out and try to play it on a gig or try to you know play it in a recording session or something like that. Um, and since you are a master teacher and have been for years, I would love to hear your advice on practice and what do you think is the, the most effective way just to practice in general? I know that's a, that's a general uh, question, but what, how do you think people should approach practice and what, do you, what are some mistakes that you see with people practicing? Yeah, well, it is a very big question. and It's, it's hard to give a very specific answer, but in general... With my students, I try to break it down into three or four main areas of practice, things that you should do on a regular basis. One is technique. You always have to be working on your technique. I am not talking about speed technique or trying to play the fastest double bass drum roll in the world. All that bullshit is almost I wish useless. You could, I wish you could repeat that five more times. Almost useless. Bullshit. Almost useless. Yeah. Bullshit. Almost useless. Yeah, it is. I mean, no one wants to hear that except some other drummer that's trying to do the same thing. I mean, ask uh, any guy, when's the last time the leader of the group that you're playing in turned around to you and said, hey, could you play some faster notes? Right. It just, they don't care. What they want is a, good time, good feel. That's all they want. Yep. It reminds me of a uh, of an Ndugu Chancellor video, and he's like, I, he said, I've never been called to do a drum solo. 
Right. You know, that's not right. what they, that's not, that's not what gets you the phone call. Drum solos are, a, you know, kind of a strange phenomenon uh, that has developed over the years for a lot of different reasons. I'll tell you one kind of inside the inside story that may interest the guys that are listening to this. I was at a private dinner on the Queen Mary that's birthed in L.A. there mm -hmm. that the Ludwigs were holding during um, one of the NAM festivals. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I was there with some because uh, of my Berkeley affiliation and so forth, and there were a few other guys there, and uh, the Ludwigs were there. Old man Ludwig was there, and his son was there. And this was right around the time that they had come out with that drum set called the Octoplus, which mm -hmm. had 12 tom-toms. And old man Ludwig had a little bit to drink, and he, he basically said, we can sell these motherfuckers anything. If we come out with a set with 25 drums, they're stupid enough to buy it. That was his words. They're stupid enough to buy it. He knew that they didn't need it. He knew that it didn't have anything to do with playing, but it was very showy to have a huge drum set on stage. Right. Have lots of tom-toms, lots of bass drums. But in terms of playing tunes, playing with a band, I mean, I was basically a jazz player, so I always played a relatively small set. Uh, it's not doesn't have much to do with actual playing. And when I studied tablas, which was probably one of the best things that I ever did with a couple of really good master tabla players, you know, they play on two drums, and they can do more on two drums than we can do on 20 drums. Mm -hmm. It's just really amazing the tones and the sounds that they can get out of those two drums. So they go much deeper into that. We think that when you have a 8-inch tom-tom, the one thing you can do is hit it. And then when you have a 10, a 12, a 14, a 16, and 18, you can just hit them. And so they produce one sound, one thing. Mm -hmm. But if you if you have less, you go deeper into it. And I think that that would help a lot of students to realize that every instrument that's on your set is capable of producing many sounds. You just have to look around for them. Right. When you hit a cymbal, it's not like it just produces one sound. Mm -hmm. It produces many sounds. Sure. In fact, I had a student recently who studied, he was a graduate of uh, New England Conservatory, then he went on and did the Monk Institute, and now he's all over playing with tons of people. And he was in town recently playing, and we were talking, and he said, he was, he was telling me, he said, you know, one of the most important things you ever told me was that you can get a lot of sounds out of the same instrument. He said, I never realized that. He says, now I can do like 14 different sounds on my ride cymbal. Hmm. I said, well, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Right. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. I, I remember a few, maybe six months ago or so, I was watching a, a Treelock Gertrude uh, performance, and he same he's just playing two drums. And it sounds like an orchestra. And yeah. it's, it's just him playing, and it's... it's Absolutely amazing. So yeah. I 
I uh, I love the advice of trying to trying to get different tones out of out of each instrument rather than just saying, oh, I need a different sound, so I should add another drum or I should add another cymbal or another bass right. drum. Or I something need like another that. snare drum. I need a third bass drum. Yeah, right. It's, it's silly. It's really silly. <laughs> well, everyone knows that triple bass drum is where it's. <laughs> okay, so I have to. I, sur- think, I <laughs> think the two most amazing. If you you know talking about drum solos, I think the two most amazing recorded drum solos that I know of is Trilax with McLaughlin at the Royal Albert Hall or the Festival Hall concert and uh, Jack uh, solo with uh, Miles on a tune called I think it's What I Say on the Live Evil album. Mm-hmm. Jack's solo is kind of one that starts off in time and then kind of dissolves and goes free, and then goes back into time. And the sounds that he gets on his drums, of course, Jack's drums are pretty weird anyways, but the sounds that he gets are really unbelievable. He does things where you can hear him muffling the drums with his hands and changing the pitch of the drums. Mm-hmm. And the and Trelock solo is a time solo. It's in a tune that's in five. And he does a lot of what we would call rubato rhythm, where it sounds like he's speeding up and slowing down the rhythms that he's playing. Yeah. Now, in my study of tabla, I'm not sure which way he's going. If he's doing it that way, or if he's actually doing just relatively complicated rhythms, because there are a lot of rhythms that are very close to one another. We don't realize that because we look at rhythms purely by the meter that they're in. But mm-hmm. if you compare rhythms between 4-4 uh, four, four, and 3-4, there are some that are like one note difference over four or five beats. So I'm, I kind of think he may have been doing some of that because they go very deep into the rhythm thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but those are two solos. The guys want to talk about drum solos. Tell them to listen to those two solos, and it will change their mind. And I'll be sure to, to put these solos solo in the is. notes in the show notes page uh, for this Absolutely. interview, so people can check it out. Um, Absolutely. I wonder. I want to circle back. You said that there was three main areas of practice, and we sort of drifted away from that a little bit because uh, we got on the drum solo thing. Um, right. So the the first one was technique. Right. Um, and technique basically means. A kind, you know, it's like going to the gym. So if you do push-ups and you do set-ups and you do 20 minutes on the treadmill, why are you doing that? And mm-hmm. it's basically to just get your body in shape. It's not for a single reason. It's for your, you know, for everything that you do. It will make you a better baseball player. It will make you a better runner. Right. It will make you better at anything that you do. So you need to have routines that are dealing with the fundamental things that you do on the drum set, which to me are playing the basic patterns that we play, single strokes, double strokes, hand foot, uh, exercises, orchestral roll exercises, multiple bounce exercises, things like that, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of the stuff in my technique book is about. And the second area is material, learning stuff, learning rhythms, learning stickings, learning 
stickings with flams, uh, learning articulations, learning phrasings. And the third area is music, always playing with music. So when I would teach, uh, the students would always, I made a bunch of demos up, and most teachers do this. They have tunes that they want their students to work on to demonstrate certain of the concepts that they're presenting. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had demos in the rock area, in the jazz area, in the Latin area, in the odd meter area, you know, the different things. So if a student came in and said, well, you know, I have this tune that I'm having to play in five and I've never played in five before, I would have some examples of tunes in five so he could hear not one thing but many different things so that he could get used to it because most guys have played hundreds of tunes in four. Right. So they're used to all the different ways it can go down, but not in these other meters. Mm-hmm. So it's really those three things, technique, material, and music for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the, I think and you had mentioned you had mentioned books, too. And there are, you know, when I was younger and studying, there weren't a whole lot of drum books. Now there are thousands, mm-hmm. thousands of books. There are a lot of really good ones. Sof's books are great. John Riley's books are great. Steve Houghton's books are great. There's a lot of guys that are writing really good stuff uh, related to the drum set. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not that any guy, not me, not any of those guys, has the corner on you know what the thing is. But I think if you took it all together and worked out of all of those books, as well as others... You know, Stonebook is still applicable for lots of things. Sure. His Accents and Rebounds book is one of the toughest books ever written. It's so uh, it's so hard. For anybody out there who hasn't gone through it, it's a really yeah. hard book. It's a really hard book. Yeah. And there were other books that I ran into, uh, you know, here and there in my travels. There's a book by a guy in Italy uh, by the name of Pasquale. Bona, I think, called Rhythmical Articulation, which is one of the hardest rhythmic books that I've ever seen. Much harder than my stuff. Hmm. And, um, yeah, there's, you know, it's it's tough because most guys who are studying with somebody are studying whatever that guy knows. Right. What else could it be? Sure. So, guys like myself who have an established program, most of the guys that will will come to me come to me because they want to study that stuff. If they want to study the stone book, there are lots of guys more that have more experience than I do teaching that book. Mm-hmm. So I would send them there. Uh, but in terms of general stuff, yeah, something like the stone would definitely be a good book to work on certain aspects of your technique. Sure. I've been working out of that Charlie Wilcoxon book lately. That that's a that's a hard book too. It is. Yeah. So I I have to ask, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about this. Um so you you mentioned that you have sort of your own, you know, your own program that you've been teaching a certain way and ter- teaching certain things since the 70s. And there's a new app that came out that Mike Johnston came out with called uh, Groove Freedom. And a lot of people are saying that it's all of your 
stuff that is just put into this to this app. So I, I I couldn't have you on on the podcast and not ask you about that if you know anything about that or if you've seen it and what your thoughts are about it. Never even heard it. Never no. even heard about it. No. No. So I have no idea what it is. Oh, okay. Uh, it's it. You know, I can. Once I was over in Germany touring, and I in the process I stopped by the Music Messe, which is their version of uh, the Nam Show, mm-hmm. except it's about five times bigger. And somebody had brought me a magazine from one of the. Uh, it was a German magazine, drum magazine. Mm-hmm. And it had the fatback exercises in it. I mean, the guy didn't change anything. They were written the same. They were in the same order. They were laid out the same on the page. Everything was exactly the same. So all of the people from Warner Brothers were there because my old teacher, Sandy Felstein, was the president of Warner Brothers Publishing. So I went to them and I I showed them. I said, look at this guy's just copying my shit. And he's not giving me any credit for it. And they said... It would cost us more money to sue him than we could make. So there's nothing we can really do. So I've seen that so many times, as I'm sure other guys who have written books that are, you know, somewhat popular have seen, where guys take your stuff they don't give you credit for. Mm -hmm. I, I... you know, I, I, there's just nothing I can do about it. I don't, I mean, in, like in this case, I didn't even know about it, but it doesn't surprise me. Hmm. That's an interesting. So I don't know. Tell the guy to give me some credit or tell the guy to at least say where he got, what the source is for his uh, inspiration. Sure. Sure. So now speaking of books, um, so now you have the, a new book, the odd time stickings book. Right. Um, so, what is, how is that different from the other from the patterns book, or the pattern it's series? A, I should say. It's a bit more specific because okay. it's taking one issue and kind of going into detail about it. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, basically uh, showing students a way that you can take the stickings that were presented in the sticking book and use them to negotiate various odd meters. Uh, For example, when most guys are first confronted with an odd meter, they have very few representations of that meter in their memory banks. Mm -hmm. So for a guy like me, you know, as old as I am, the only five I had ever heard of was take five. Sure. And then somebody one day, someplace along the line, played me a cool in the gang too. That was in five. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard it before. I'd never heard. It was actually five phrases and two measures, kind of like of anything. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd never heard anything like that. And so I said, oh, well, there's a lot of different ways to play five, isn't there? So the purpose of the book really is to get guys introduced to playing odd meters in a lot of different ways with a lot of different feels. So if you play the same meter with 10 different sticking sequences and 10 different accent lines, it will really feel different. You'll get a much bigger sense of what that meter is, and certain of those ways may be more appealing to you than others. And then you may explore those in more detail and come up with your own ideas. Hmm. It doesn't have 
bass drum lines in it. Like, so if you were setting up grooves, you might take uh, one of the phrases that you particularly liked with a certain accent that you liked and then develop your own bass drum lines against it. But it's basically, it's kind of like a stone book for odd meter. Cool. Cool. I'm intrigued now. I'm just thinking of, you know, just listening to what you're just saying, and that's, um, I think I'm going to have to pick up this book now. <laughs> if you play the same meter 25 different ways, I guarantee you it will change your idea of what that meter is and how it feels and how it sounds. There is no question in my sure. mind. You just got to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just, you know, changing the accents and, and changing the stickings. And I, I, I've experimented with a little bit of that and, and can totally hear how it changes how everything sounds. So if you do a deep dive into that, I, I'm sure it's going to open up a lot of doors for you. Right. The other thing guys have to realize about the accents is, is when, and I talk about this in the sticking book and I talk about it in this book, but some guys don't ever read the words in books. They only look at the examples. I've had guys that came in that played the sticking book with no stickings. They thought they were just single strokes. So, you know, you have to go, you have to keep telling guys, no, no, no. You have to really read the words and hear, you know, what the thing is about. So if you play the examples that are in that book, the accents that are being used are the accents, the basic accents that come with the stickings. Mm Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean those are the only accents. As soon as you take that and do it in some function, like you're using it for a fill or you're using it for a time feel, the accent lines may change. First of all, they may disappear completely if you're playing it for a fill. And if you're playing it for a time feel, once you lay it out between your hi-hat or your ride cymbal and your snare drum, you may realize that there are some other notes that are available for accents that you would prefer to use rather than the ones that are in the example. Hmm. And of course, yeah, certainly you can do that. Sure. Sure. So the, the, the accents that are written are sort of a, they're from the stickings, right? They're the primary accents that were written, you know, in the sticking book, there are no accents on the double strokes. But mm-hmm. we all know that when you're playing time fields, guys accent on double strokes all the time. Right. So I mention that in the sticking book, and I show it in the few examples that I give of time fields. But some guys don't really pick up on it. So in this book, I tried to mention it again, that when you're playing time fields, and you lay the sticking out between two voices, which is different than just playing it on the snare drum, you may decide that you need to have an accent in a different place, and it's completely legal. There's no law that says you have to put an accent in a certain place that is sticking. Sure, sure. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, speaking of what you meeting with people and, and, and teaching and, and all of that, I know that you retired for a little while, and now you are out of retirement. Um, so what was the reason behind the retirement and, and coming out of retirement? The reason uh, for retiring was I was 65 years old, and I said, okay, I've done that enough. I'd like to do something else. Mm -hmm. The reason for coming out of retirement was I was just getting so many requests for teaching that uh, 
I decided that I would do it on a limited basis. Mm -hmm. And I have a grandson now who is taking drums, who's seven years old. So I have one of my students who teaches kids, because I don't know how to teach kids, (laughs) teaching him, and then I'm kind of helping him out. So I bought him a little Ludwig set and got some Zildjian cymbals, and he's happy as a pig and shit because he's got really good equipment. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm not doing a lot of teaching. Mm-hmm. It's a small amount. It's, uh, you know, for guys who just wanted to find out what my thing was about. And I'm getting a lot of the guys from, like, Europe and Asia mm-hmm. that are coming in. I have a guy from Mexico that comes in on a fairly regular basis. And, yeah, I mean, I still like to teach. But um, I had some physical issues. I had a knee replacement, which really screwed up my ability to use the Mm hi-hat. And the hi-hat was very important to me in terms of the style of music I played, which was modern jazz. So I haven't been able to do that anymore, so it's kind of limited that. But my brain still functions, so I can still tell guys stuff. I just can't demonstrate it quite as well as I used to be able to. Uh, That makes sense. So if someone wants to study with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? I'm sorry? If someone wants to study with you, what's the best way to get in touch? Because you do it in person. You don't do it over Skype or any of that stuff. Yeah, they mainly, yeah. I mean, a lot of guys have asked me about Skype, especially guys from Europe. Mm -hmm. I I can't see how that would work. Not for the way that I teach. I need mm-hmm. to be in the room with the guy. Right. I need to see him play. I need to see him physically play. I need to see his touch. I need to see his grips. I need to see how he responds to uh, different types of things. So it's. I'm sure it's a. It has a lot of good things about it, but it's just. It's not for me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they mainly have to come here to be able to uh, do it. Sure. So if they, if they are interested in, in coming to, to Boston and taking lessons, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Through my website. Okay. They can just go on my website, and uh, then they can uh, contact me through that and email me. And they can also order the books through your website as well, correct? No, I don't no? sell the books. Okay. That's only through the company. Okay. And I have one more question for you. I noticed um, you have this this drum club, and what is what is that all about? Can you tell me about that? Oh, it was a complete flop. Was it? <laughs> yeah, complete flop. Yeah, nothing happened with it at all. I was hoping to really start a kind of conversation mm-hmm. between drummers, amongst drummers, about drum stuff. You know, but it just never, I, I think I had two or three guys that signed up for it, hmm. and that was it. So it's, that's probably for another life, <laughs> because it's not, it's not going to happen this time. I mean, there's so, you know, when, um, like I have, uh, I'm very good friends with Steve Houghton. Mm-hmm. We've, we've been friends for years and years, since he was in high school. And I was teaching in college. We've been friends. So that's a long time. And when we get together, he's actually coming out to visit me uh, 
next weekend. That's all we talk about is drums. Right. There's so much stuff to talk about with drums. It's it's such an interesting area, and it's too bad that guys don't realize all the different things that are available in terms of playing the drums. But it's, you know, I did as much as I could do in my career. I taught for 40 years. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. Now it's up to other guys to, you know, to carry that on and keep the tradition going. Sure, sure. So now what, I guess the idea of it was to have just people, was it e- people emailing back and forth, sending different ideas back and forth and things like that? I didn't really know where it was going to go. Right. I was hoping, yeah, to to set up a conversation. You know, it would be like a a group type of thing where a lot of guys would um, get involved and the discussions would be based upon what people were interested in, what they were working on, how things were going, things that they were running into either in their playing or their practice. Could really be pretty wide-ranging. Sure. It just... I bet you... I hate to say this. I bet you not one in ten people who bought the book ever even read that page. No? No. (laughs) I mean, I've had a... You know, I was telling you the story about the sticking book, but I've Mm -hmm. had lots of guys with lots of other things like that who were just unaware. They saw it, and then they just skipped over it because it wasn't the book. It was something else. It was an advertisement, so I don't really want to read an advertisement. Right, right, right. You know, so it's kind of more like that. (laughs) So it's, you know, maybe, again, something for another life. Sure. Well, I hope that 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 does does happen at some point and, and people, you know, start to put this, this conversation together. That would be, that would be great for, for drummers out there that really want to do that. And I suggest that, that people keep an eye on your website. If, if that happens, uh, at garychafee.com, they can also get in touch with you if they want to take lessons privately. And also, uh, I strongly recommend that, that everyone picks up Gary's books. Now there's, there's four in the pattern series and then, and then the new book as well. Correct. Yeah, plus there's the uh, linear time playing book. Okay, so five or six books total. Yeah, and really, if they want to get an idea of how to put all the books together, Mm -hmm. there are the two videos, which I think are probably the best work that I did in terms of explaining the whole concept and how everything fits together. One is called... uh, um, Phrasing in motion, and one is called sticking time, linear time, rhythm and meter. And they basically are showing you how you would tie the various parts of the books, the different books together, how you could work on them, how one relates to the other, and so forth. And they were very well done. That was a Warner Brothers production. I think they're still available. I hope they're still available. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll definitely do some, some research for all that stuff and make sure that all of the links for all of your books and, and your DVDs and your website and all that stuff is on the show notes for the, uh, for this podcast so that people can, can check that out. Cause I definitely recommend that people do that. And, um, 
and thank you again for for being part of the podcast. I appreciate it, and you know I know that that you want to spend some time with your your grandson, and and you're busy, so I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Sure thing. And uh, my pleasure. And yeah, I will I will let you know when the interview comes out. And again, thank you so much. It was it was an honor and a pleasure to have you. Okay, thanks a lot. Man. All right, thanks, Gary. So there you have it, Mr. Gary Chafee, and be sure to check him out, GaryChafee.com, and check out all of his books. They're, they're really, really amazing, and they're challenging, and they're just, they're great. Uh, go to DrummersResource.com forward slash session 105 if you want links to all of the books, or go to his website, And but like he said, you can't buy them off of the website, so if you want the direct links to them, check out drummersresource.com forward slash session one zero five. Check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummers resource on Instagram at drummers resource and on Twitter at drummers R source. And until the next podcast, you know what to do. And I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks so much for listening. Peace. Peace.